This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson. Welcome again for joining us. If you've joined us in the past, welcome for the first time, if this is the first time. Uh, There's been a bit of chatter somewhat recently, I'd say online, uh, illustrated by a particular TikTok video from the Sovereign Citizen Movement. Sovereign citizens, in essence, believe that they are not citizens of the U.S. are not subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. government. In many cases, that means that they believe they don't have to pay income taxes. Um, That's not true. So the point of this episode is to share the clip of that person's explanation and then maybe lend a little bit of more concrete background to anybody who's curious about these sorts of claims, where they're coming from, and how courts react to them. Short answer is not well. And this will hopefully give you a little bit of context too if you've ever heard tax professionals chuckle about these sorts of cases uh, as to why it is that they're chuckling about these kinds of cases and the arguments in the cases. So here you go. Check out, uh, I'm going to play this clip here. So you'll, you'll hear that clip here for a bit and then I'll come back and we'll talk about the clip. We'll talk about the arguments of sovereign citizens and the way that courts react to these kinds of arguments in real life. All right, here's the clip. I told the IRS that I am non-taxable. That's not the same thing as tax exempt, because if you're tax exempt, you're asking permission to not pay taxes. Um, But I am non-taxable because I am a living woman who does not reside in the D.C. zip code. I sent it as an affidavit, so I gave the IRS ample time to respond to me if they have any rebuttal at all. And if I do not get a response, then I assume that, you know, I can continue living out my rights as a non-taxable living woman. I had my affidavit notarized and sent it certified mail. This was September 3rd of last year. I did not receive a response. Oh, and I also included a W-8-B-E-N that I filled out with the best of my ability. And I included also a Google Maps printout of my exact coordinates of where I domicile, just to prove that I am not within the DC zip code. And they could find me if they really wanted to. Oh, and another thing is I mentioned that I am not an employee of the state or federal government in any way. If I think of anything else that I missed, I will add it underneath this video. Okay, that was entertaining. Uh, a couple of things to dig out of this clip just to highlight before I dig into what courts say, which you probably noticed from the clip anyways, but I'll just point these out. First of all, the lady in the clip continues to refer to herself as kind of a natural woman, a, a, a natural human woman, not a citizen or not a subject of the U.S. government, somehow drawing a distinction between the physical body and the citizen that would 
otherwise be taxed by the U.S. government, for example. Then she makes mention of where she lives, quite prominently, in fact, um, making it clear that she gave the IRS her coordinates to show that she lives outside of the District of Columbia, because in some cases in these arguments, they claim that if you are outside of D.C., then you're outside of the scope of the federal government, uh, which is an interesting take. And then she also mentions sending an affidavit to the IRS, making these declarations, and how the IRS didn't rebut the affidavit or respond to it. Of course, they have no obligation to respond to those sorts of things. But she makes that uh, she makes that announcement pretty prominently in her explanation of what she has done. Now, let me be very, very clear: what she has done will not work. Okay, that does not give you any of the things that she did or said will not give you any grounds for not paying taxes in the U.S. if you are a citizen here or you are a resident here or if you are a non-resident of the U.S. and you're making money in the U.S. None of the arguments and none of the actions that she describes will change the fact that you have to pay tax in the United States and you're subject to the jurisdiction of the federal government. So on a slightly more uh, illustrative and explanatory level, let me read to you some language from uh, a court case that I think is pretty well, uh, it's pretty well written. It's a nice summary of these types of arguments, the way that the courts look at these arguments. This is a, a district court case from Maryland from 2005. It's the United States versus Mitchell. So if you're trying to find it, the District of Maryland, 2005, Mitchell, uh, you should find this one. Uh, here's how the Mitchell court describes these arguments and think of the way that this lady in the TikTok clip was describing what she had done in light of the way that the court is describing these arguments. So here's what the court says. Though the precise contours of their philosophy differ among various groups, almost all anti-government movements adhere to a theory of sovereign citizen. Essentially, they believe that our nation is made up of two types of people, those who are sovereign citizens by virtue of Article 4 of the Constitution and those who are corporate or 14th Amendment citizens by virtue of the ratification of the 14th Amendment. The argument put forth by these groups are generally incoherent legally and very greatly among different groups and different speakers within those groups. They all rely on snippets of 19th century court opinions taken out of context, definitions from obsolete legal dictionaries and treatises, and misplaced interpretations of original intent. One of the more cogent, in the sense that it is readily followed, arguments is that there were no U.S. citizens prior to the ratification of the 14th Amendment. All Americans were merely citizens of their own state and owed no allegiance to the federal government. As a result of that amendment, however, Congress created a new type of citizen, one who now enjoyed privileges conferred by the federal government and in turn answered to that government. That was, uh, that's the end of the quote. That was a quote from this Mitchell case, which was, uh, uh, again, a Maryland district court case. They were trying to deal with one of these sovereign citizen cases. There, there are, uh, there are a, lot, a lot of cases uh, that describe these cases. So here, here's another one. This one is from the Western District of Virginia in 2007. It's the Bryant versus Washington Mutual Bank case. As you can tell, these, these sorts of uh, arguments come up a lot. So this is what that court says, that, quote, 
Supposedly, prior to the passage of the 14th Amendment, there were no U.S. citizens. Instead, people were citizens only of their individual states. Even after the passage of the 14th Amendment, U.S. citizenship remains optional. The federal government, however, has tricked the populace into becoming U.S. citizens by entering into contracts embodied in such documents as birth certificates and social security cards. With these contracts, an individual unwittingly creates a fictitious entity, i.e. the U.S. citizen, that represents but is separate from the real person. Through these contracts, individuals also unknowingly pledge themselves and their property through their newly created fictitious entities as security for the national debt in exchange for the benefits of citizenship. However, the government cannot hold the profits it makes from this use of its citizens and their property and the general fund of the United States because doing so would constitute fraud, given that the profits technically belong to the actual owners of the property being pledged, i.e. the real person represented by the fictitious entity. Therefore, the government holds the profits in secret. Individual trust accounts one for each citizen, close quote. So that was the Bryant case trying to explain some of these arguments. You can see that they're very wide-ranging, um, and they're very, they, they kind of have a veneer of legitimacy, but that's not really, uh, that's not really the case. And I can tell you in all of those cases, these uh, arguments are dismissed. In fact, I, there's, a, there's a case out of the Eighth Circuit that pretty well describes the response of most courts to these arguments. It's the U.S. versus Watson case from 1993. And in U.S. versus Watson, the court just simply says that the arguments are meritless, they're absurd, and they're entirely frivolous. You don't want to have meritless, absurd, or entirely frivolous arguments in front of any court, let alone a federal court, let alone when there are federal tax debts uh, on the line. And in fact, you could be being prosecuted criminally for not paying your tax debts. So I think these these cases, the way that the courts react to these arguments are number one, they're actually quite they're quite consistent across federal courts, across districts, and the outcomes when people try to make those arguments are also quite consistent. They lose. And even though they may think that the federal government doesn't have jurisdiction over them, it in fact does. So when, and again, as uh, as the Mitchell case pointed out, there isn't really a very specific single way to encapsulate these sorts of arguments. They come in many different forms. They kind of have different ways of viewing things. Uh, they have different strategies. You know, the Mitchell case noted that sometimes they will try to rely on very old cases, very old treatises, old legal dictionaries. Sometimes they'll try to rely on on specific actions that the person takes that supposedly sever any ties or any responsibility they might have, like submitting an affidavit, claiming their sovereignty, claiming that they're not a citizen, and then a you know, when that affidavit isn't rebutted, that somehow that creates the facts legally that they're trying to establish in the affidavit. It doesn't, but that's what they're, that's what they tend to claim. You know, there's, there's just a whole wide swath of different arguments. They all kind of come from similar branches and similar uh, ways of thinking. So it isn't actually important that those arguments uh, are consistent with other arguments that have made in other cases. The, the thing that is important is that the, the nature of the arguments and the substance of the arguments are in essence the same, and that is that the federal government doesn't have jurisdiction in some fashion over that citizen or over that person. And sometimes it's a, it, they're trying to draw a distinction between like the citizen and then like the physical person. So there's a couple of reasons even aside from 
<laughs> the dismissiveness of federal courts to these arguments, why that very specific distinction is, is a bad one and just indicates that somebody doesn't really understand the way that the law works. So if you, if you reside in a jurisdiction and you're physically present there, federal law on the jurisdiction of the courts or the jurisdiction of the federal government is pretty clear that if you're physically there making use of and occupying that area, that jurisdiction exists. And that, that exists in cases where you have private parties suing each other. Um, being physically present will create the jurisdictional reach of the court that that is in that part of the country. Just being there will will do it. You can you can find yourself subject to the courts of that state or that jurisdiction just by being physically present. So even that argument that there's some distinction between, say, a citizen and a person with a physical body, just on its face doesn't work. And even if you really wanted to drill down into some of the constitutional arguments that some of these people make, it's really not necessary. I mean, the jurisdiction of the federal government is quite obviously over the physical, physical like flesh and blood body of a person who's physically present inside of the geographical scope of uh, the United States. So there just isn't really, um, there just isn't really any way to slice or dice these arguments such that they would have any merit. And again, it's not important that it comes in one specific form versus another. Federal courts dismiss these arguments left, right, and center. And federal judges really see through them very, very readily and quickly. And in most of the cases, uh, if, you ever, if you're ever interested to sit down and read some of these cases, um, these federal judges who take the time will have enormous long citations to enormous bodies of federal cases that are dismissing these types of claims. So let me give you one of them uh, that I think is a, a good one to look at. It's the United States versus Mooney. This is a district court of Minnesota case from 2017. So if you just Google search United States versus Mooney, district court, Minnesota, 2017, you'll probably find this case. And just if you do that, just look and see how thoroughly, and this was really, I think, focused more this isn't even like a complete recitation of all of the cases on these topics, but just look at how thoroughly these arguments have been examined and dismissed across the country, across district courts, uh, federal district courts, in virtually every single part of this nation. And it is pretty astounding. And I, you know, sometimes you don't really have a substantial body of law for relatively common cases. But in this instance, there is a substantial body of law dismissing these sovereign citizen cases. You d just don't want to be that person. So number one, not that you would, but just as a reminder, don't try to make those arguments. And number two, if you hear somebody trying to convince you that they get to avail themselves of one of these arguments, now you know they're just blowing smoke. They don't know what they're talking about. And they are definitely going to lose if the IRS or the federal government comes after them. All right, on that very positive note, I will leave it there. Thank you again for joining me. I very much appreciate it. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.